Hey everybody, it's Jake and I am alone in the basement. Today I'm gonna to be talking to the devil himself, Drexel. This one is gonna be awesome. Uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, which you definitely should be at this point, uh, go on IWTV, go on YouTube, look him up. Uh, a stalwart of the Pacific Northwest scene. He's uh, an amazing wrestler and character. Just can't say enough awesome things. So I'm, I'm really excited for this one and I can't wait to, to be able to talk to him and, and pick his brain a little bit. Uh, you know the deal by now. Uh, there's an ad. Skip through it. I don't care. And the way back, we're going to be talking to Drexel. All right, everybody. We are back, and we are with the devil himself, Drexel. Again, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Uh, no problem, man. Greetings and salivations. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. It's a little rainy over here. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. It's going to be rainy now for the next, I don't know, like five months. So, yeah, it's, that's every day of my life living out here. Uh, there was supposed to be snow this morning, but it wound up being a little too warm. So I guess I should be happy about that. Yeah, I, I grew up in Detroit, so uh, when I moved out to the uh, Pacific Northwest, and, like, we get snow maybe once a year, but if I want to see snow, I can travel up to the mountains. I like, 45-minute to an hour drive. I can see as much snow as I want, <laughs> but I can just hang out in the city and just deal with the rain instead, so it's not so bad. Yeah, I actually, uh, for a while, was thinking about moving that way and uh, just never made the jump for some reason. <laughs> It's the uh, land of the weird and the freaks, and that's why I ended up out here. And uh, I can I can walk around without people grabbing their kids here and yanking them away and uh, out of fear, like uh, most places that I live. So, oh, that's definitely a plus. Then, yeah, I I don't know. I like I don't see myself as that weird, but uh, I at one point during my wrestling career, I moved down to Florida and lived down there for about four years. And I uh, uh, my shoot job, I worked at a, a strip club. Uh, penthouse club so on, on the high end side and the general manager the uh, first week he met me he's like so what did you serve prison time for and i looked at him i'm like what are you talking about prison time and he's just like well i mean your knuckles your neck just the way you look and i was like no actually i was a morning radio dj and i'm a pro wrestler but uh i guess thanks <laughs> But that's, uh, I guess that's how I'm viewed by most of America. So I, I just hang out here in the uh, the land of the weird and no one looks twice at me. Well, then it definitely sounds like you found the right place to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're like a little black hole of, uh, of just us and no one really sees what's going on. It's nice with the internet and things getting out because like 15 years ago when I got in the wrestling scene up here, it was uh, a total black hole that knew, no one knew anything about but a lot of talent, uh, if you escape the area, seemed to do really well. Uh, really well so, And that was something I, I didn't understand. I mean, I was going to get into this later, but historically, you know, the Pacific Northwest was such a crazy hotbed. I mean, Portland wrestling was it. And it was yeah. one of the last territories to kind of die out. So I don't understand why there was that period where no one was paying attention. Um, I mean, as far as locally, it was because the wrestling fans had been burnt too many times by too many uh, shit promoters over the years. Um, you couldn't, uh, if you were a promoter or a wrestler, you couldn't get sponsorships anymore because they had been burnt by so many promoters over the years. Like after Don Owens, uh, 
uh, folded up shop. It just became a free for all of uh, Billy Jack Haynes had uh, basically burned a bunch of bridges, and then everyone that came after Billy uh, did the exact same. So you had all that, and then as far as the the wrestling scene, we were do, just doing what we do up here and uh, just working amongst ourselves. And every so often, a promotion would bring in uh, some uh, some either former name or uh, an indie star or something. And and then occasionally people would get out, but the guys that would get out would be like Davey Richards or Kyle O'Reilly or Darby Allen. And once they did escape the Pacific Northwest, they'd end up uh, taking over the world. It was kind of crazy, so. And I'm, I'm kind of not surprised when you mentioned Billy Jack there, uh, just from stories yeah. I've heard from other people. So oh, I, yeah. I, I can see how that kind of uh, soured I, the area for I a little mean, bit. When it comes to old school wrestling, I've got a lot of respect for a lot, a lot of guys that came around back then. But in a modern day era, uh, what was considered okay or yeah, that's just the business. Uh, you know, they're they're creeps, a lot of creeps, yeah. a lot of real shady, carny motherfuckers. I mean, I've seen it. Um, one of my best friends in wrestling, a guy named Jason Sullivan, who's uh, based down in Texas now that was in Pacific Northwest when we were both coming up, He uh, his first experience of, uh, of wrestling was paying Billy Jack Haynes for the uh, brand new school Billy was going to open up and then never did and never returned any of the money and took off out of town. So, oh. uh, yeah, he's notorious around here. <laughs> And most people don't give him the uh, the time of day when he shows up. They're like, oh, oh, great, uh, must eat meth or something. <laughs> and it's it's crazy in a way because he was one of those dudes that was lighting the territory on fire. So you think yeah. he would have more respect for the people yeah. that you know helped get him over and an area that I, was so firmly behind. Him. You, but you listen to him. The man is just so <laughs> out there with his stories, and I mean. Yeah, we're all bullshit artists in some ways, but I mean, his stories just start reaching way out there and stuff. So they do, and then just some of the stories you hear from other people, like the story about you know when he was in Mid Atlantic, and then one I forget which Crockett it was. I, I think it was David, just comes in one day and is like, "Yeah, Billy Jack ain't here anymore." And then someone's yeah. like, "Why?" And he's like, "Oh, he threatened to shoot one of us." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wrestling is. Uh, I don't know. It's, it, it's good and bad. Uh, I dealt with so much shit coming up uh, in the business and, and with the way things were. And, and it's great that it's changing and it's now going to be taken seriously. But when you look, it, I think it's best just to close that book on the uh, on the past and we can all just have a laugh. But sometimes I worry, like, they're going to uh, try to erase all of history of wrestling if everything ever came out about everyone. There was there was no one that was really good back in the day, <laughs> or very few. Yeah, I mean, and that's a really good point because, I mean, we are in this era now where we're, we're holding a lot of people accountable. And yeah. there's just so much shit that people did where, I mean, there's a lot of people that I looked up to and now you hear stuff and you're like, man. Yeah, whoa. I, I, and some of them, the, the, the worst is like, some of the worst guys in the world were the biggest baby faces in the world. And yeah. Like, wow, you just hear the things that they did to the fans and stuff. It's just, it's mind-blowing to me. And, yeah, I, I'm glad I, I, I came up when I did. And then when, like, everything went to shit during COVID and, and the speaking out and everything, I, 
I, I actually sit just sitting here because you, you think way too much and you're not doing anything. And I was like, oh, my God, are people going to be offended by me? Because I've done a lot of horrible things, but it's always pretty much it's always been in the ring. It's always been in character, like no matter how outrageous and in how many lines that I've crossed. And I sat through the entire thing and I was like wow, well, I'm glad my fans get it then because I like lick people and I do a lot of crazy shit that just comes upon me. And especially if it'll freak someone out, I do it out there. And uh, I had to think, I was like, well, I kind of got to rein it in. I (laughs) caught myself uh, when you saw me at the ICW show, when I was walking to the ring, I uh, walked up to a fan and I sniffed her and I said, you smell different when you're awake. And then I realized, I was like, oh yeah, it's cold and I can't get that close. Close to people, and I slid right in the ring. I was like, I gotta stay away from these people because I'll start. I'll start. I just, I don't know. I when I become Drexel, I kind of just go into it. Uh, just kind of go into a character. I kind of just go into this mode, and uh, what I do, I'm not really sure. It just kind of just comes out, especially when it comes to dealing with other people and fans and, and interacting with people. So, well, I mean, as someone, uh, I, I forget what it was, where it was on Facebook today, but pretty much said, you know, heels aren't doing their job right unless someone in the crowd wants to stab you. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's true, but you have to play such a weird line right now of you know getting like we really want to see you get stabbed and we really want to stab you and okay now we're gonna boycott the company it's i don't know yeah it's uh it's just such a uh, a weird place to be and especially as a heel that wants if you are a traditional heel that wants to go out there and wants to rile up the fans you have to uh it really ha- everything has to be directed towards the other wrestlers and then you have to uh I don't know. It, it's just a weird time in wrestling. It's uh, a lot of things are changing, and it's going to be interesting uh, creatively where uh, people have to go with it. So yeah, and I also feel like. I mean, I was a big proponent of the speaking out movement. I still am. Uh, It's important that, you know, everyone who has a story, man, woman, non-binary, wherever you fall, to tell your story. But there's also a difference between the person when they're just portraying their character and who they are outside of that. And that sometimes is two different people. Well, uh, up here, at one point early in my career, I I was a, uh, I played uh, a Nazi as part of this group for, uh, I don't know, it was probably... It's four to six months we did we did the angle before uh we had lost a uh you know gotta lose your flag type uh bs type thing and um one of the guys in that group uh got a whole bunch of publicity by being a complete asshole after uh, the george floyd death and kneeling on someone's head and he took a picture and he's like well i'm not dead like he had someone kneeling on his head total douchebag i i haven't associated with this guy since this you know it's been 12, 13 years since this angle. And so that got brought up that this guy portrayed a Nazi at one point. And I had a couple people hit me up like, hey, man, are you worried? They, you know, there's videos. And I just started laughing. And I was like, well, if everyone that knows me doesn't know I'm not a Nazi by now. I, I don't know what else I could do. Right. It, 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 I'm like, well, do they really think that I'm the devil? And do they think I'm all these other things that I've done in the ring? So it, it's that's 
the beauty of wrestling is the storytelling because I remember at one point doing that Nazi angle and feuding with uh, African-American wrestlers and we did an angle where they knocked me and this guy out and they blackfaced us and and we woke up from being uh, knocked out and blackfaced and the crowd's all laughing at us and we're outraged and, and we're so pissed off about it and then I end up running the almost exact same angle seven years later but reversed where I'm teaming up with African-Americans and these guys black uh, blackface me and say, well, you know, you want to hang out with them. Why don't you be with them? And how outraged I was like, I had the same thing done to me twice. But the, he watched me uh, just playing with the story and the uh, the narrative of it and getting such a polar opposite uh, um, result is what I love about wrestling. It's the storytelling that I love. I mean, I'm not a super athlete. I can't do flips, but the storytelling is what I've always been. Gra- I've always gravitated to. So, yeah, and uh, you're you're very good at. It, and uh, I think we'll get into that in a minute. But we'll start yeah. in the beginning uh, with you know the question you've been asked a million times in your life. How did you get into wrestling? And do you remember what was like the specific thing that hooked you? I. T- so I probably started watching about the age of seven or eight. Um, it was right when WWF was starting to syndicate more. I grew up in, in Detroit. So in Detroit, um, Saturday and Sunday mornings, I don't know what year it was, but you had superstars, you had challenge. Um, I'm thinking probably about 84 is when they came on, 83, 84. And then locally we had, uh, it was WWA, which was uh, Dick the Bruiser's company um, that ran on one of our local stations that was based out of uh, Indianapolis. And then on one of the Canadian stations I got from Windsor, it was uh, International Wrestling, which was uh, Rick Martel and Dino Bravo's company. So I don't, I, it was probably, I was about seven or eight. And then once I found wrestling, I was just obsessed with it and there was nothing particular about it I was a kid who grew up and loved Star Wars and superheroes and comic books and somehow wrestling just was it was real life comic books for me and so as soon as I saw it 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 became my obsession through uh most of my uh, my childhood and in teen years and uh yeah going from when it was popular in the 80s up into when I got into high school in the beginning of the 90s when it was not popular and I had to uh, hide my fandom because God forbid someone knew that I watched wrestling or <laughs> ordered pay-per-views that would be uh, completely ostracized and wouldn't have been one of the cool punks, that's for sure. And uh, it's actually really cool that you got to grow up kind of, you know, towards the end of the territory system where you still got to see you know, WWA stuff and, and the international stuff, which I haven't really talked to a lot of people who got to see that live. Yeah. I mean, I was just, it was what was available on TV for me. And I was always the kid that bought uh, pro wrestling illustrated and everything. Uh, I w- I got WWF magazine, but I didn't like that as much. I liked the other ones to be able to read about what was going on around the world and like seeing those bloody pictures from these different areas and and just all the craziness and going, oh, who's this guy? And then trying to look up pictures of him. And and it was just always a struggle trying to find, uh, find more info about him. And I, I grew up, I don't know, pretty, uh, lower middle class so there was no money for me to be able to purchase vhs tapes and stuff i remember it, we didn't even have a vcr until probably like uh, 86 or 87 
So it was always a fight to get me to leave my house if wrestling was on. Like Sunday mornings when my grandmother wanted me to go to church because I was raised by my grandparents. Um, it was a problem to get me out of the house to go to church because wrestling was at the exact same time at 11 a.m. And given a choice between God or uh, at the time Roddy Roddy Piper or Junkyard Dog or the British Bulldogs, wrestling was always going to win out. <laughs> uh, I mean, it still wins out for me. <laughs> So like were the was it more WWF guys that you were drawn to? Were like they more of your favorites? Um that's what I saw the most, but I mean so uh, in WWA, I saw uh, Scott Rexteiner, which was a, a, a very his baby face when he first started uh, for Scott Steiner. Um, he became the champion in WWA, uh, defeating the great Wojo. And I remember watching that and being a huge star or a huge fan of his. And then he disappeared until he eventually showed back up in uh, NWA with Rick. And I was like, oh, my God, they're they're brothers. I had no clue because that guy <laughs> yeah. was Scott Rick Steiner, not Scott Steiner, or not Rick Steiner. Um, and I mean, so there was always local guys, Dino Bravo, Rick Martel. I had uh, I had known them from being the international, like the Canadian champion. And then Rick Martel went on and I would read about him winning the uh, the AWA title and stuff. So I had had favorites throughout the different ones but wwf was the, the the most mainstream and the like the first wrestling shirts i ever bought were roddy roddy piper and british Bull, british bulldogs so i'd say them and then junkyard dog would probably have been my favorites i don't know why i was attracted to them it's such different characters but all three for some reason i i just love them so and I actually think it's it's funny that you didn't mention AWA till just now because I thought you know Michigan was an AWA spot. <laughs> no, the, it wasn't on TV. Wow, I mean, that was yeah. It it came on later once they got the uh, the ESPN deal, but uh, before that, um, all my AWA knowledge came from either the uh, they were. They were really strong on VHS tapes. I remember at one time, and they had the uh, the cheap VHS tapes that were like the nine ninety five ones that you would find at a, a department store that I could actually get and be allowed to buy. Um, and I remember those having uh, some old AWA stuff like uh, Road Warriors. That was the first time I saw Road Warriors was AWA footage, and it was via a VHS before uh, I had ever gotten cable or anything. So. I know what you're talking about. I think I've seen yep. one of those exact tapes. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 in fact, it stands out right now. Uh, one of the matches was uh, the Hennings, uh, Kurt and Larry the Axe uh, versus the Road Warriors. And the finish on it was uh, Kurt uh, did the went over the top and got caught in the top rope where he was being strangled. And they hit him in the head with a chair and he was just gushing blood. And the ref called the uh, end of the match because he, he was turning purple and all the blood racing, uh, rushing out of his head and stuff. And it was real, real brutal for the time. And I just I ate it up. It was the greatest thing ever to me. Then, then yes, I have that same tape because I remember the, the last match on it, I think, is them dropping the titles to... It's someone in Steve Regal, and I didn't understand that that wasn't. Jimmy Garvin. Yes. Jimmy Garvin with Precious and Steve Regal, yeah. And I, I wow. somehow could, didn't understand how that was Steve Regal, because the only Steve Regal I knew was in WCW at the time. I'm like, how are these I, the same person not realizing I, they're not? 
I always tell my wife and I tell people I can't remember anything. I can't remember my own phone number any of the time, half the time, and I always blame it on headshots, unprotected headshots for so many years. But then I, I remember things like this for no apparent reason. <laughs> so I, I've got just selective memory, or as I just keep crushing parts of my brain, it's just like, oh well, we'll just get rid of this useless knowledge. Like, ah, eh, you don't have to remember half your birthdays. <laughs> But the wrestling stuff stays. Yeah, yeah. The most uh, minute, stupid wrestling <laughs> thing is just ingrained in my head for no apparent reason. Uh, so what was it that made you say, all right, I'm going to be a wrestler? I never thought I would be, honestly. I didn't. Uh, when I got out of high school, um, the only school that was a uh, wrestling school available anywhere near me was in Lima, Ohio, and it was Al Snow's. And this was 1993. It was still the land of the Giants. I'm only 5'11", and uh, at that time, probably maybe 150 pounds. And so there was no way I was going to make it in wrestling. I actually became a radio DJ. And I was a morning radio DJ and producer and stuff and moved around the country for mm, about 14 years total. And it wasn't until... Um, I moved to Portland for a radio gig, and Portland Wrestling, uh, a version of it, was uh, was on TV here. And that's when I was able to get my foot in the door. Um, there was one chance earlier in probably the mid-90s, I met Scott Demore at an indie show in Michigan. And uh, he said, you know, don't worry about your body, uh, not being an athlete. I can... I can teach you how to be a wrestler. He's like, you got charisma. You're already a performer from being on the radio. He's like come down and train at my school and my girlfriend that I lived with at the time was like, no way in hell you are going uh, and wasting all this money to try to become a pro wrestler. And I mean, and logically looking at it, it was a time as ECW was, I mean, the writing was on the wall that people were basically leaving and they were running out of money. Um, and it was definitely becoming the WWF's, uh, um, you know, the entire, uh, the entire industry was the WWF. So I, I figured I'd never get a job and maybe, you know, opportunities arise. We'd ever see what would happen. And then when I moved to Portland and it was on TV, um, I talked to the, the radio station I was working for. I was like, Hey, uh, can we do a cross promotion with the wrestling company here? And what sold the station was that our uh, morning show competitor had a, uh, like a, um, a video show of their uh, their morning show. It was like half an hour of their morning show would show on the station. It was half an hour or an hour, and wrestling usually came on afterwards. And so they're like, yeah, sure. We get our, our, our face and our logo all over there. Yeah, why not? So that's how I was able to get my foot in the door. I contacted Portland Wrestling, and uh, they were like, yeah, we can work something out. And they, they told me, um, I met up with the promoter at the time, this guy, Frank Culbertson, and he, uh, he's like, uh, so we have, want to do this angle and we want to have the, the guys, bad guys beat you up. So we'd love to, uh, to have you come down and, and kind of train. And I was like, okay, That'd be <laughs> awesome. No problem. And originally it was me. I was the executive producer and one of the co-hosts of the morning show. And then it was our stunt boy from the show. Um, we will, both went down to train and, uh, first day we go down to a, uh, a former or current at the time, uh, bingo hall, uh, and in the back, there's a ring set up and I meet the grappler, uh, Len Denton for the very first time. And for 12, I think it was like usually 
twice a week, and it was for about two months, we would go down there, and Grappler would have a couple of the younger wrestlers in there, and all we would do is roll, bump, run the ropes, take hip tosses, take arm drags, uh, get body slammed, get chopped, get forearmed, get beat up. Never gave a bit of offense. All we learned how to do was protect ourselves. And it was like that for two months. And uh, that was my original wrestling training. And uh, then I made uh, made my debut on Portland Wrestling as an announcer and did the whole angle with Grappler's crew uh, coming in to beat me up. And originally I was told, yeah, the guy will probably just give you like a DDT and then he's going to put a snake on you. Okay, no big deal. I get there and this wrestler who never is going to be anything and was never anything. So, of course, he had a chip on his shoulder of who is this radio DJ coming in here. Yep. And he tells me, no, I'm not going to give you a DDT. I don't do a lame-ass DDT. I do a double underhook pile driver. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. He's like, all right. So we, uh, he's like, Let, let's work it out in the ring. So in the ring, we practiced it a few times, perfectly fine. I'm able to brace myself and base myself, and I'm not acting like a uh, loose noodle up there for him. You know, it's perfectly fine. And we go out there to do it uh, uh, for the cameras and in front of the crowd, and he literally planted my head in the ring as hard as he could. Oh, and, dick uh, move. I could, yeah, I couldn't move my neck for, it was a good two to three weeks I had limited movement. It was a good whiplash of my neck. Um, but they did the whole stretcher deal. They carry me in the back and he walks up to me before I'm able to get off the stretcher and kind of smacks me on the cheek and goes, how's your neck, kid? And I'm like, uh, a little stiff, but thank you. And I shook his hand and I walked away and I, I no sold it. And uh, at that that was my, my first of several beatings. I took my first year getting in the business um, of being told, uh, you're just a, a fucking radio DJ and you don't deserve to be here. And, uh, and we're going to make sure that you quit. And so each time I would thank them. And then I would go and I would lick my wounds uh, in a different spot, <laughs> not around those guys, and uh, and just took it until I uh, earned all their respects that they weren't going to be able to just run me out. So I had too much love for the business and the fact that I got my foot in the door um, in something that at one point was so hard to, to get an opening because it wasn't, I mean, for so many years, it wasn't like there was a wrestling school in every city like there is now. Every major city has a wrestling school just about. Um, you can at least find a ring to go try to train. It might not be the best training, but you could at least start getting the basics in and, and see what it's, what it's all about and if your, your body can handle it. And uh, so once I got my foot in the door, I wasn't going to let anyone run me out. So. Yeah, and that's a, still a very old school way to kind of get in that it's just, you know, you got to make the best of an opportunity. I mean, wrestling's always been right place, right time. Um, my first matches were, uh, my very first match was a six man tag, uh, give a, a quick rundown of my, I think it was eight to nine months that, uh, Portland wrestling, I was with them before they ended up folding. But, uh, I went from a, an announcer to, uh, to a manager. I was uh, at one point was going to be let go because the uh, radio station didn't want to do a, a co-sponsorship anymore. And so they're like, all right, well, uh, I was told by the promoter, hey, uh, we're not going to use you anymore. We want to find another radio station. I thought, all right, well, that sucks. And at that point, uh, Luther, Dr. Luther, uh, Luther from AEW had taken over the book. And Luther told the promoter, um, 
no, you're not getting rid of Derek. Um, actually, he's going to become our, our, our top manager. He's like, I've got to bring, at that time, there was a problem getting a bunch of Canadians across the border with uh, dealing with visas and stuff. So he had to start importing wrestlers from California up. So he was going to have an influx of a bunch of young talent, and he needed someone that could talk for them. And decided Luther decided that I'd make a great manager. And so, uh, and honestly, when I first got into wrestling, that was my goal. I thought if I could be a bumping manager like Bobby the Brain Heenan, that's the best I'm ever going to get. There's no way in hell I'll ever be a wrestler. Um, but so uh, that was my first opportunity, and then my very first match was a six-man tag. It was me. Um, and two wrestlers I was managing. Uh, I don't think either are in the business anymore. A guy named Laramie Lexo and a guy named Wade Reichton. And uh, we faced uh, Luther, uh, Adam Thornstow, who's part of the Reno Scum and Impact, and then a guy named uh, Skag Rollins, who's actually a stand-up comedian up here in the Pacific Northwest now uh, by his name Todd Royce. But, uh, yeah, I did a six-man tag. Had no clue what the hell to do. All I knew how to do was uh, protect myself, and I was told just listen kid and that's what i did and i ended up uh i think i ended up eating a couple chairs to the head uh took my very first uh power bomb and the first one turned into like three power bombs at one point uh, i don't know luther beat the living hell out of me and then my second match was a uh, a singles match against luther to which uh when asked what are we going to do he said watch the Andy Kaufman uh, Jerry Lawler match <laughs> and he goes we'll do something like that and I said okay and it was at the state fair uh, here in Oregon so I, I go and we do the whole thing and I'm wearing a neck brace because I had taken so many beatings on Portland wrestling they had put me in the neck brace and did that whole deal and I'm dressed up like a, a complete idiot and Luther's in the ring like come on I'll give you the headlock and I go in and I lock a headlock on from the wrong side. Why? Because I've never actually been trained how to give any offense. All of my training has come with, hey, this is how not to break your neck out there and how to protect yourself if these guys uh, start really wanting to fight. And, like, you know, I've done Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and taekwondo when I was younger, uh, back in, like, my early 20s. So if it came to actually fighting, I can protect myself. But, there, you know, you've got to toe that line where you can't just start throwing live rounds back at someone because they pissed you off so um yeah i, I took those beatings and uh, and and did that and from there i ended up uh, as portland wrestling was shutting down i uh i started training with uh i did an angle with playboy buddy rose who was uh running a school here locally and as part of a company i was managing a guy buddy was involved in the match and uh i think i think i buddy uh, pulled me off the ring apron and posted me or something it was the first time i ever gigged and i made sure and made him look like a million bucks and, and buddy's like i really like you thank you so much he goes come train with me and so I started training with Buddy Rose after that. And that's where I actually started to learn how to uh, not just take things, but actually give things and, uh, and, and learn what the hell I was doing. Like, I had a, a better grasp on psychology before I ever knew how to give a headlock takeover or a body slap. <laughs> and, I mean, that's just all such, like, a crazy old school way. And, I mean, the beatings have to suck. They do. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> like and now when I help train kids, I I'm like I don't chop you. I'm like you want me to uh, if I'm pissed off at a class, I'm just gonna run you <laughs> because I've learned like you can beat the hell out of someone. They're not gonna learn anything. Normally, if you make them run the ropes for th- uh, three minutes, that at least calms them down. It's kind of like training a dog. I look at it very much the same. Like oh, you got a bunch of pent up energy. All right, let's run. Now you don't have so much energy. Now you are going to pay attention to me. Now you can calm the fuck down and we can learn something. So, yeah, the beatings, I don't think help, but that's just my opinion. There's still some guys that like to do that shit, and I'm like, whatever. It's, it's not worth it. You're going to take enough abuse out in the ring. So Yeah, I definitely think it's something that's that, that shouldn't be done anymore. I don't feel like there's a point to it. But, no. I mean, were you familiar with the grappler before you got to train with him? Um, I'd read the name uh, from his days in, in Mid-South and in, uh, in World Class, but uh, before that, I mean, I knew he was a, a big territory guy. Um, Luther, I was completely not familiar with because I had only seen, I mean, a lot of that Japanese deathmatch stuff wasn't available over here, and yeah. I was never huge into the tape trading. So I had seen the old Terry Funk um, um uh, Mick Foley, uh, IWA stuff, but I hadn't seen that much FMW, and it wasn't until I actually met Luther and started doing on uh, like deep uh, dives and searches on the internet and stuff, and started uh, doing my research on Luther of like how good he was. And then over the years, when I would bring up his name, everybody, you know, just certain people would be like, you know, Luther? I was like, yeah, he's one of my mentors. And then we'd start talking about it. It, it was really great. Uh, me and him actually went down to Cauliflower Alley a few years ago um, together. And they referred to him as the, the Snuffleupagus of pro wrestling. <laughs> like, everyone had heard of him and heard how great he was, but no one had ever actually met him in person. He was like this elusive creature that, that floated amongst the wrestling scene. And everyone's like, yeah, he had these killer matches with all these people. He's been all these places. And we're like, whoa, that's just crazy. I mean, I've seen him referred to uh, Jericho, Edge, and a few other people in the 90s as being the best worker that never got signed by one of the big three just because of bad timing or bad circumstances uh, one way or another because he had opportunities for all three. And uh, all three ended up falling through. So It's definitely a dude. I'm glad he, he's getting his due now. Uh, yes. and, and no one's kind of looking at it as a too little, too late thing because he's really, I mean, he's doing well in AEW. And I mean, I love the stuff with Serpentico. So, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, another guy that's had this huge long career, I, I wrestled Serpentico uh, in his uh, human form years ago down in Florida. And another guy that was always so cool and such a great guy and, and gave back so much as being the uh, main trainer for the, the Dudley School for years in Orlando. And when Luther first faced him, I was like, oh, you're wrestling, wrestling John. That's awesome. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then. They uh, did the team up, and they kind of just hit it off, and it, it worked well for the two of them. And I mean, Luther, when COVID hit, I had uh, so many matches. I really had my April, or at the end of March, April, May, were it was like an all-star list of matches. I had Ricky Shane Page in a main event match that was going to be live on IWTV. Uh, then I had a three-way with Mance Warner and Casanova Valentine cool. set up. I had a match with uh, Hornswoggle, a match with Danhausen, uh, a match with Papa Shango. Like, 
this huge list of matches that got canceled. Oh. And I honestly thought at the beginning of COVID, like, this is over. I like, I, it, it's been a good run because I'm 45 years old. Most people don't realize how old I am, but I'm an old man. I didn't even start wrestling until I was 30. So I, uh, and it was actually Luther I was talking to. And he's like, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> he goes, he goes, do you think I had any thought of ever being on fucking national TV with a full-time contract? He goes, do what you do. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. I'm like, if it ever comes back. And I think it was about two weeks after that, um, is the, the first time Danny from, uh, ICW did me up and said, Hey, you got any interest? And, in, uh, you know, your name keeps getting brought up by, uh, by talent and, and by other people. And I was like, yes, I would love to come out there and do a tryout and have some fun. So that's how that all ended up working. Cause beginning of COVID, I was like, well, I last year I quit doing a shoot job. Uh, besides, it's like I just work for myself as a wrestler and as a uh, an artist. And so I was like, I was paying my bills that way. And with COVID, that that really threw a monkey wrench in that situation. I yeah. thought, all right, well maybe I just got to find like a real career now. I can't go back to like DJing at strip clubs and there's no money in radio. And I was having a uh, an epic uh, what am I going to do next moment. And it was Luther that's like, yeah, just shut the fuck up. You're still going to be a wrestler and. If anyone's going to come out of this, it'll be you. And currently, there's probably maybe like four of us that are in the Pacific Northwest that are openly uh, traveling around and, and doing other places. So, And I'm one of them, so I seem to be doing all right. Yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I hate to kind of circle back to, to, Buddy, oh, to Buddy Rose, but he's one of my favorite wrestlers that people don't talk about. Uh, just an absolute legend, and I know sometimes that gets tossed around, you know, all the time on certain people, but Buddy Rose was the legit deal. Uh, if you've never seen the Blow Away Diet video, <laughs> pause right now, uh, go to YouTube and find that. Uh, if you've never seen any of his matches with Doug Summers against uh, the Rockers from AWA in, like, 86, it's it's some of the, like, best cage matches of the 80s right there. Even better than that, just look back at uh, his run in throughout Portland, especially in the early 80s. His stuff in the early 80s in Portland is just phenomenal. His uh, his feuds with Piper, with Snuka, with uh, Rip Oliver, all of them. Like, every babyface that came through, him and Kurt Henning. Um, and what was great about Buddy, that no matter what size, like, he was at his best at about 230, 240. But even when he ballooned up way past 300, the smoothness that he had in the ring and the ability to bump and feed and make someone look like a million bucks. And like my, still one of my favorite bumps is where buddy uh, would get hit and then fall ass first between the first and the second rope and just hit the floor. That way it was just one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. It was always hilarious or he just hang upside down by his feet, hanging there dangling off the side of the ring. Um, him and Adrian Adonis were two guys that I, I feel never got enough credit for being so good and so smooth, especially for their sizes. I'm with you. Uh, to me, Buddy Rose will never get 
the the credit he absolutely deserves. And yeah, the Portland yeah. stuff is great. If anybody has any way or ability to get the Buddy Rose tapes, which tape traders know exactly what I'm talking about, do it, find it. Most of it is up on YouTube. Yes, um, a lot of it because there was a. Uh, the, the guys that uh, guy that got all of Buddy's uh, videos and transferred them over, people have since bought those uh, those discs and have put them up all over the web or web and stuff. So you can find a lot of it. It's uh, hit and miss on quality, but the only reason most of this Portland footage even exists is because of Buddy, because he recorded everything that came over the TV onto uh, tapes and uh, and then kept all those tapes. And a lot of them weren't even beta or VHS. It was some third uh, market thing that was supposed to be the next big thing uh, before beta and VHS. And uh, it just completely flopped. But yeah, Buddy had even those tapes. So his garage was filled with that stuff. It was amazing. And uh, we're so like great. I mean, I'm super grateful for that because there's so much stuff that, that was there and so many people that came through. And yeah, the Piper stuff from the late 70s to the early 80s is fantastic. Right before I mean, he went to Mid-Atlantic. All of that was all just taped over. Like each week, Don Koss thought nothing, or Don Owens thought nothing of it, and they just recorded over the same tapes week after week, and there was no record kept of all those years, and by far probably one of the best promotions going for like their. My opinion on Portland was their their main events were always some of the best. Their undercard wasn't quite as strong, but their main events were always some of the best across the entire country. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about the Portland Territory, and I feel like anybody who cares about wrestling needs to at least look into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Uh, another guy who's a huge fan is uh, me and Chris Hero. The first time I ever met him, it turned into like a two- or three-hour straight conversation about Portland wrestling <laughs> and stuff. He's like, um, same thing with Rob Naylor. When they uh, when I met the two of them down in Florida, they're like, we don't know anyone else that knows Portland <laughs> wrestling. And it became a real fun, uh, fun down trips of memories and stories and stuff, so... Now, as you're transitioning and you're you're going through, you know, the beginnings in Portland, at what point do you, like, start to think that you want to go from, like, this manager character into the direction that you've gone into? Um, I mean, there's been so many incarnations of Drexel over the years. Um, it, starting as a manager, there was a certain point probably about a year and a half in, uh, between a year and a half and two years, and I was working for a lot of the different companies uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest and was actually getting paid to come in and manage for all these different companies. And there was a company in Northern Washington that paid me really well to come in and uh, promoter basically had me managing his son to get his son heat. And I remember being on the outside on a tag match and they were facing these two Lucha guys and it was the hot tag and they both just took uh, drop kicks and then laid there like just sacks of shit. And I remember being on the outside of the ring screaming, bump and feed, you useless pieces of shit. Why am I standing out here when I know what to do in there and you don't? And it was kind of like, you know what? Fuck it. I know what to do in there at this point. And, uh, and I wrestled a little bit under a, a mask, but a lot of people didn't know that. It was just my home promotion. I would get to wrestle under a mask. And, and most people, I would say 90% of the people had no clue it was me. Um, but I didn't want to kill the actual Drexel character at that point because that was what was actually getting me paid, um, even if it was just as a manager. 
so I made the transition over and uh, and then just kind of built uh, from there and, and went for another, I don't know, a couple of years here until I, uh, I think it was about year five or six when I decided that I wanted to get seen. And so I moved me and my wife and my dogs down to Florida so that I could go train at FCW and go train with uh, with uh, Norman Smiley down there. So I made the transition down to Florida and then spent a few years uh bumming around the Florida <laughs> Indies and meeting people and shit. And, and then at a certain point I was like, ah, I'm going to move back to Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Just, I'm not, you know, I'm too old. I'm too small. You know, nothing's really going to come about because that was a point. WWF was still hiring giants when I was down there is when like Luke Harper and Eric Rowan and all those guys had been signed. So looking at a t- skinny ex morning radio <laughs> DJ that I was told, you know, if this was 15 years ago and it was about managers, you would be hired in a second. But Vince doesn't want managers. And so, um, and that's why I went down. I had no delusions that I would be hired as a wrestler. I really wanted to just show them that I could be a bumping manager and could be an asset. And I mean, I got critiqued. I worked uh, a Ronin, I think it was a Ronin show. I worked a couple other, like, of the bigger shows down in Florida. Um, worked in front of like Jim Cornette to put me over and same thing with, uh, with Kenny long as saying I could have been a great manager back in the day. Um, but throughout the whole thing, I just kind of kept wrestling. And when I moved back out here, um, I thought, all right, I'm just going to come back out and have fun. And after that happened, that's when all the opportunities arose. That's when I ended up getting to go down to South America. And that's when other stuff just started opening up. Things like Defy came and Prestige up here and opened up a whole bunch of eyes on the Pacific Northwest that never thought was going to happen. Yeah, it's definitely blown up oh, yeah. within the last decade or so. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the last few years, the last two to three years, that before that, no one knew anything about what was going on up here. Um, ECCW up in Vancouver, BC was probably the only one that got any looks, and that's because of so many stars that came out of there. Um, because all the Kyle O'Reilly's, um, the Tennille Dashwoods, the, I mean, Becky Lynch worked out, was there, uh, when she came over to the Americas the first time, um, uh, Natty and Harry Smith and, um, just everyone came through VCCW and that was when I would travel places and I'd get to work other people, they'd be like, well, what companies do you work for? And that was the, always the one go-to that they go, oh, okay, I've heard of that place. But then after Defy opened up, Defy opened a lot of eyes to the Pacific Northwest. And then uh, other places opened up like Prestige and, uh, and Without a Cause. And, and with IWTV, that, it helped so much because they all linked up with IWTV. And that's the number one spot. If you like indie wrestling, you just have to go check it out. And if you want five free days, you can use the code Drexel. There you go. Take, take advantage because there's so much to watch. Uh, oh, it's amazing. I feel like I kind of always had that, like, I wouldn't say like a weird inside knowledge of the scene, but uh, I've known Daniel Maccabe since I was 17 years old. So, okay. all right. Yep. So I've kind of known what's going on in the area <laughs> just mm-hmm. by knowing him and knowing uh, other guys that, you know, he was in within the circle with. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
well, guys would come up here and they'd be like, wow, there's a lot of talent up here. You guys need to get the hell out of here. <laughs> but what it comes down to is flights from the Pacific Northwest are more expensive than anywhere else in the United States. That has always been a problem and it'll always be a problem. Trying to get companies to fly you in when it's going to cost a hundred extra bucks for your ticket. I mean, it, it's on the rougher side. So. Uh, in, in 2007, I flew to Vancouver, uh, you know, to, <laughs> yep. to to hang out with some guys and wrestle a little bit. And over three days, it cost me $1,000, including the yep. plane ticket. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very expensive. And so, I mean, that's why a lot of people never escape. And I mean, and it's... A, People ask, like, when I had ICW, they're like, well, why don't you travel more? And I said, up until COVID, I was booked every weekend, and I made money. Um, so, I mean, if opportunities were there and they were offered up and I could make money, yeah, I'd love to go travel. I'd love to, to go around and, and check out other areas. But this is a business no matter what. Yeah. I love performing, but this is also a business. And if every single weekend, I mean, it's become a problem with me and my wife. She knows that if uh, the word vacation is ever brought up, <laughs> vacation is not a real vacation. It is me going someplace to wrestle, and we might have a day or two before or after to do something but the wrestling is the most important part so <laughs> no in fact, i can't remember the last time we've taken a trip a real trip together we pretty much just do them separately now because i just go someplace and uh, i'll just like for uh icw i went out a day early so i could go check out philly because i had never really explored the city so <laughs> I mean, you got to do what you got to do in that situation. Exactly. And, you know, I, as I tell her, I was like, well, how many more years I got? do I have? And she's like, well, you said you were going to be done at 40. And that was five years ago. And I was like, yeah, but I mean, but, but realistically, how much longer can I go? And I just keep throwing that one out. And so... You know, at some point, I'll, I'll plan on taking a vacation. But it's so bad that I've got uh, friends in Hawaii that even if I was offered up a Florida or a Hawaiian vacation, I would probably go, all right, well, let me see what dates they're running. Because <laughs> well, why not? It's Hawaii. I right? want to wrestle there. <laughs> Same thing with that. I know some guys in Alaska. And it'd be awesome to go check out Alaska. But it'd be more awesome to wrestle in Alaska. So. Oh, definitely. I'd love to check out some of those, like, crazy weird scenes in like you know the anchorage fairbanks area that like get like no coverage yeah yeah i mean i've traveled mostly the main uh the main united states and i've seen most of the states and stuff but like after i went down to south america and experienced the other culture other cultures and stuff it was uh I definitely wanted to travel more and experience more and uh, and freak more people out in other areas because that was really fun. Like I, I've got a goal of uh, of going to Japan and running through a crowd and watching them run around like it's the 1990s FMW. That's that's definitely like bucket list stuff. If I can make that happen at some point, even if I've got to be carrying a chainsaw, I'll do it. I, you know, whatever. <laughs> Uh, so when was it that you decided that you wanted to go in more of like the hardcore deathmatch uh, area of wrestling? I loved ECW. I remember seeing live ECW shows and I think it was 96 down in Florida. It was when I was working in radio. Um, I saw ECW. I was down in Tampa uh, working for a station and I saw ECW down there and I saw their very first show in Detroit that they did and 
So I always loved hardcore wrestling. And then once I started wrestling, my favorite parts of feuds were the blow-offs. And that was Pacific Northwest. We had to rely on storytelling for our companies to draw around here because none of us had a budget. We had no fly-in. We had no real names. Everything had to be based off of stories. And that involves, you know, some kind of gimmick-type blow-off type shit. And so that's what we ran with. So I, I did a lot of hardcore that way and, and learned the right and wrong ways of, you know, like what to use when lighting things on fire. Like <laughs> use lighter fluid, don't use charcoal fluid like someone uh, bought and tried to do one time. And we almost we set the entire ring on fire, but almost blew me up at the exact same time. <laughs> So I've done a lot of stupid shit, um, learning the right and the wrong ways of trying to stay alive. And <laughs> over, like, as Defy opened up and, you know, as I said, I'm older. So there's a lot of super athletes in wrestling now that do a lot of cool shit. And I'm like, I'm much more the give me some comedy, some storytelling, or I can do some hardcore. And, you know, it's for every one crazy bump I take, you're going to take 15 flippy bumps. So, you know, I think it balances out. So I've just done a lot of hardcore, especially recently. And uh, in that process, um, you know, people started going, hey, have you thought about doing death matches? And I said, you know, right opportunity. I'm, I'm not looking to go into someone's random backyard and uh, and do a uh, an outlaw show that is going to be seen by 20 people and uh, with no exposure but if it's an actual legit deathmatch company that's built a reputation and is is known for good deathmatch wrestling i'm totally down it's just another form of storytelling to me so i'm i when people ask me what i'm best at i'm like i'm really good at hardcore and comedy so if you pick one of those two you're, you're gonna get a, <laughs> a, a, a definite bonus but you know you need me to chain wrestle I can actually do that. I can shoot wrestle. I can do a little bit of everything, but I'd say comedy and hardcore are definitely my, uh, my, my strong points. <laughs> and I, I feel like you, you've definitely, you know, carved out like a, a spot because you, you do both so well. Yeah. I'd like to mix it up. And I, you know, I, my philosophy on wrestling, it's all about moments. No one's ever going to remember, especially fans are never going to remember an entire match. It's about doing something a little bit different, taking something where they expect to see something and then you switch it at the last minute, do something else. And it stands out to them. That's what I work towards. Um, if you ask me to remember a 20 minute match in the back, I'm probably going to look at you and go, yeah, a lot of headshots and I smoke a lot of pot in the Pacific Northwest. I'm not going to remember. Um, I tell a lot of people, I was like, all right, we can run through all this, but be ready to call it out there. Like, talk to me. And you probably only have to say the first of like the next five moves. And then I'll remember that, that block, but you're probably going to have to remind me what's coming next. Um, and so I was like, I'm much more into let's just build just some moments and we'll play, uh, we'll play connect the dots in between. And that's when all the magic happens. That's when my favorite things happen in wrestling are always just the random things that happen in between the moves. So, yeah, yeah and that's definitely, you know, when you get your interaction and your moments that, yeah. that, that people always take home with them. Yep. Yeah, I, I tell people, I was like, yep, I'm, everything that I'm going to do is look, get to look legit. It's probably going to, uh, it's going to make contact. I'm, I'm not going to hurt you. 
but uh, you know, let's just have fun with it, and let's uh, let's. I'm a big fan of getting your character over. Nothing I hate more is when I wrestle a guy and it is constantly up and constantly up. I'm like, calm down, lay there. I'm like, trust me, I'm not going to beat on you. Just lay there. Give me a chance to get over. I'm like, it's much easier for you. <laughs> I, uh, I use Anchor. It cuts you off after an hour, so we're getting close. I'm just going to stop All it right. and then restart quick. I, there's, like, no break in between. All right, yeah. All right, and no one will ever notice one list. <laughs> um, cool. But it's it's one of those things, too, where I, your character is amazing. I mean, to put it the best way. And I had, I, I had seen some of your stuff beforehand before COVID, but it was... You know, seeing the promo work you did during that time, especially the baseball promo, is oh, yeah. <laughs> it was just so good. It was like, man, I didn't realize how amazing of a character this really is. Well, as I started um, the the horror version, the, the newest version of, of Drexel probably started about six, seven years ago, and it was actually down in Florida. Um, when I had first moved down to Florida, I was at one point I was teaming with, uh, Christina Vonieri, who is like my, uh, she's like my kid sister. She's actually still on my family phone plan. If that tells you how close uh, we are, she lives in Canada. She's married up there, but still on my phone plan somehow. I don't, each month I get money that, to pay her phone bill. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was me, her and Jesse Neal and we were going by the bastards and kind of doing the punk rock thing, had mohawk, whatever. And uh, then I was, what was, I forget the company, it was uh, FOW, I believe, down in the South Florida area. Um, I was teaming with a guy who came from New York named JoJo, and we were doing the freaks of wrestling. I started painting my face a little bit, and then they asked me if I wanted to turn heel. And I said, yeah, yeah, let me completely, like, can I go total monster heel? Because at that point, no one was doing anything like that in Florida, really. There was Beast, who was part of the Army of Darkness, and that was it. And uh, so I did that, and then I uh, immediately got asked to join the uh, Army of Darkness with a Buddha uh, Dean, uh, Snake Master Jeff, and and Kevin Sullivan, and and for about a year down there I was doing that. And when I moved up Pacific Northwest, I was doing the uh, the horror version of Drexel, and that's just kind of what's melded since then into to what I am now, where I just kick and choose from my favorite serial killers and horror characters and just weirdness and people ask me how i come up with the character and i'm like lots of character study i sit and watch youtube i'll watch like videos of schizophrenics i'll watch just all sorts of things just to pick up like the little twitches that they do or weird movements that they do and try to incorporate that into my wrestling so that people don't know a lot of fans don't realize, especially sometimes at the merch table, if I'm entertaining myself and I'm in full Drexel mode, people, I've met a lot of people that think that Drexel and Derek are the same and that I am that weird. I've <laughs> I've freaked out uh, promoters' families and stuff where, like, promoters uh, came over and it's like, my wife really thinks you're insane over here. She's been watching you and the fact that you're not even interacting and you're still doing everything that you do. And I'm like... I fall into the character, and I've just built that whole character around it. So I don't know where we started on the conversation on that one, but yeah, I tend to it, ramble. It, it's ramble fine, man, because I mean, it, it it does. It helps understand so like how you put so much into it, and that's what makes the character so special. I mean, the Pacific Northwest, whether America or Canada, it's just has such a historic, you know, wrestling legacy behind it, and you've. <laughs> 
carved out your own piece. I, I've tried to do my own thing. I, I remember the, the first version of Horror Drexel, I straight up called Luther, who was in my retirement at the time, and said, hey, uh, I'm going to steal your FMW gimmick. And he just started laughing, and he goes, I taught you years ago there's nothing original in wrestling. Just make it your own. <laughs> and I even wore, like, the white jumpsuit when I first started. That was uh, splattered in blood splatter. So it was a, a straight ripoff of old uh, Dr. Luther FMW marching around the uh, the crowd, acting like a nutcase, throwing chairs in the ring and stuff. I just stole all that. Um and then it's went from there. But I tell students and uh, the young guys now, they're like, well, how do you develop a character? I said, you will know your character at the point. I think of what would your character do outside the wrestling ring? Like, yeah, you can come up with, well, if the guy does this, says this to me, I would punch him in the nose, blah, blah, blah. But what happens if your character is driving through the drive-thru and orders something and they forget something in your drive-thru order? What happens if your character is stuck waiting in line at the bank and there's someone that's taking a million years with a, an entire bag full of pennies that they want counted out? How does your character interact in a normal, everyday situation? If you can figure that out and you, can, you know that in your head of like, oh, this guy would do this then you know your character perfect for the ring because now it's not it's no longer you don't have to think of well what would they do in this situation now you just react as that character and i i tell kids i'm like it's a weird place to be but it's you know if you can build upon that in your head and and try to know your character inside and out that way then everything in the ring is going to be is going to come across as genuine it's going to come across as real and it's going to give you the opportunity to play with the crowd and not just have you're not just doing a play you're out there interacting and improving and having fun and, and doing what pro wrestling the art is really about amen man that's the perfect way to put it i can't i can't even like add anything on top of that you nailed it <laughs> Uh, now, uh, we've, we've mentioned it uh, a few times, your debut for ICW No Holds Barred, uh, yes. and it was such a great match against Neil Diamond Cutter, uh, and I encourage everyone to go watch it, and the only thing that I kind of noticed at the end, and I guess this is just me kind of being weird, but I know that everybody was kind of going crazy for Neil, and you know, yes. the whole, oh yeah, you know, please come back stuff, and, and Neil really kind of like cemented a position that night but all i'm thinking is are we not going to pay attention to, to drexel and everything he just did <laughs> um you know I, that was neil's coming out party for icw that was his big launching point i knew that going in um uh, for me that was my audition tape for icw um because there is no death matches out in the pacific northwest really that much even on the west coast down in la area but that's about it um, so that was my audition to the deathmatch world. And, uh, when I walked him back, I said, will I be back? And they said, yes, you will. So I obviously, uh, I passed the audition and we'll see what, uh, what 2021 is, is going to bring. I mean, I, I get it. Like to bring me out for a one shot costs way too much, but when you do have a double shot or you can work with another company and I can come out for two shows, then it's, it's affordable to be able to fly me out and, uh, for having me on the shows. Cause like I said at the beginning, this is a business. So I'm not, 
I'm not one of those wrestlers with a uh, self-inflated uh, ego of, well, this is how much I deserve. <laughs> no, you, you deserve what the market uh, holds for you, and depending on what your name value is. You know, I, I've promoted enough over the last 15 years out of necessity in the Pacific Northwest when we've either had shit promoters or uh, guys that were just rooting the area. We've, um, me and a couple other guys helped start a company called DOA that's been running for uh, 11 years now. That's kind of the, the company ran by the boys for the boys. And it always gave the opportunity for the guys to be able to work each other in storylines they wanted to do. It didn't, it never involved promoters putting themselves into the storylines. It was always about the wrestlers. Money's always sucked because we're horrible business people. <laughs> we're never going to be out there trying to solicit money from people, but you're always going to get a great show with, uh, <laughs> awesome wrestling on it so that you know i understand the business and like uh i actually was just talking to no peace underground and i'm supposed to make my debut in there uh down there in december and when we were just negotiating they're like thank you for being so open and essentially i was like here's my rate it's negotiable as long as i've got a a merch table and uh here's where i need to be flowing uh flowing from uh i just uh require not spirit or frontier because you just end up paying an extra 100 bucks anyway but you know <laughs> any of the other airlines i'm cool you know you need to keep me there an extra day i you know i'm gonna couch surf with some friends i'm really easy to work with so and and that's a big thing too like you said being open is huge that gets you so many places yeah, uh, but Pacific Northwest, like I said, most of the time it's about a hundred extra bucks. Right now, actually, it's the best time with the COVID prices. Has been uh, kind of, you know, it, it's worked out in my favor for the fact that uh, people are willing to fly me out more now um, than they would have been before because the uh, the flights are cheaper. So that's the one bonus. But then on the other side, they can't have more than fifty people in a crowd. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, now, I know most recently, uh, Without a Cause uh, is doing this series where there's no fans. and yes, without you, a crowd. Yes, which is a great name because you can just play on what you have. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were, you've, I know you did some tapings with that. How yes. different was it? Because I feel like it's, you know, Drexel's such a character that I feel like kind of feeds off all the things going on around you. To have no fans has to be weird. (laughs) We use the AEW method uh, model of having the wrestlers in the crowd. Uh, This is all in a pretty tight building. So you've got the uh, the ring being shot, and you've got the three walls on three sides of the ring that are pretty close. And then right on the other side of that hard cam, uh, there was a hard cam going, but they pretty much just used the, uh, the mobile cam for the shots. Um, but it was just the wrestlers and the people that, uh, like the interviewers and stuff. And we just kind of acted as fans for it. So it wasn't like you were doing a completely dead match, which I've done custom, the custom matches and things before where you have no crowd and it's really hard with no crowd. But I mean, at least you had someone to perform, uh, for and, uh, I'm always a fan of wrestling for other wrestlers because I figure if I can pop them during the match without without just like 
blatantly doing something really stupid, but actually get them to respond one way or another, then I know I'm doing my job correctly <laughs> if I'm actually working them. So for without a co- uh, without a, uh, a a crowd, there is a small crowd, but it's just the other wrestlers that were doing the tapings because they were doing uh, three weeks at a time. Each taping, I think, is three weeks. So they've got about six weeks worth of uh, episodes taped up right now. So nice, and I got some fun. I got some fun storylines, and I mean it's it's rough, especially that first match uh, because we've been doing on average usually it's two or three matches per taping, and so that first match you're feeling pretty stiff, and then you're lucky if you got like your second match comes pretty quick, then you haven't uh, cooled down. But I know this last taping, I went from one of the very first matches to the very last match, which was the main event for the sixth episode. And uh, literally, by the time we got to there, I was just I was just limping around. I was like, oh, my God, I've tightened up so much. And, like, my earlier match in the day, it's not like I took it easy. I was snap suplexing the guy on the floor. And, like, at one point, as I snap suplex, I just hear one of the wrestlers in the crowd going, why are you doing that? And that was like, I had a few of the guys who were like, why are you doing all this? I was like going to be on IWTV. At some point, it's getting put up there. I was like, I wouldn't be just doing this for uh, for shits and giggles, but it's going to be seen, so I'm at least going to give them a, uh, a TV version of Drexel that uh, they can appreciate. The uh, storyline that I've got going with, uh, with Pele, I don't know if you've watched the first two episodes yet, but uh, Pele is a young wrestler who just made his debut, and he pissed off Sonico and a couple other guys, so he decided to come to me and ask for my help so I had him sign a little contract with the devil, and uh, <laughs> this is a real fun uh, little journey we're going to take with Pele and myself. So <laughs> I haven't had a chance to watch them yet. Uh, I did just get them like set up so that they're in my browser. Uh, cool. so I know they're off Twitch, so I'm I'm yeah. I'm pumped. It's on my list yeah. to do for the rest the of the weekend. First- the first three are only like half an hour, 40 minutes, and then I think the second taping, the mat, uh, the shows will be closer to an hour, and that's what they're shooting for, is like an hour-long show uh, every two weeks, uh, airing every two weeks. And I know they're supposed to do another taping coming up, but Pacific Northwest is going on to a, another lockdown this week, um, with all restaurants closing for any dine-in, and gyms are closing again, and all that crap. So, uh, the uh, the school up there that we've been when, uh, working at, uh, they've got to close for like three or four weeks, and their next taping had to get canceled. And yeah, more COVID stuff screwing everything up, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's definitely a rough time, especially you know with with rising cases. So everybody just try to stay safe so we can still have wrestling. <laughs> you know, people ask me, they're like, "Well, what are, aren't you scared?" I was like, "I get weekly tests. I just go and I get a weekly test, um, especially like." I didn't get one last week, but I literally never left my house minus like going down to like the corner store or something or running to the grocery store with a mask the entire time. But if I'm for a lot of weeks, if I'm doing any kind of traveling, yeah, I just get go get a test each week, get my uh, my results usually on Thursday that I'm good to go to travel for the weekend, do wrestling, come back, take another test in four days and just go from there. So we can just we can be responsible. And we can be adults, or we can try to fight it and keep getting people sick like the morons that we seem to be. So. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, that's all I have for the, the wrestling questions. Uh, yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, I'm, 
running short on time, so uh, I'm only going to ask the two most important random questions, if you're cool with them. Oh, okay. Uh, the, the first one is very special to me and very important, grape or strawberry jelly? Grape or strawberry jelly? Um, actually, raspberry. Uh, that's the other acceptable answer. As long as it's not strawberry, I'm, yeah, I'm happy. Yeah, no, no, I'm not a, I'm not a strawberry fan. Like, like I like strawberries. Give me strawberry shortcake any day. I'm cool with a strawberry milkshake. But yeah, I don't know for jelly. There's just something that's not right. I'm I'm much more raspberry. That's my go-to if I'm buying jelly at the uh, store. And uh, the last one is the standard bearer of the show. What is the creepiest basement you've ever been in, and why? um okay well here's kind of crazy at one point uh in between radio gigs in my early 20s i actually worked as a cable installer for uh, uh, a contract cable installer for probably about a year off and on and so there was a few basements of like crazy hoarders where i remember walking into the basement and like there's barely even a path and these people would look at you and just stare at you like yeah well can you get my cable hooked up and i'm like no like i i can't even make make it to that room to run a cable over there and uh and that and there's been a few crawl spaces that I, I've crawled under that I've definitely I mean it is granted it was the Michigan Detroit area so I'm sure there's bodies buried everywhere <laughs> but there was a few crawl spaces that I'm sure I mean if there wasn't someone you could get at least a good six footer like a couple six foot bodies right next to each other <laughs> under those things so um, yeah I mean I, I love creepy things I've always loved creepy things um, I remember uh, I remember being, what year was it? It was 1986 when Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 came out. And I remember freaking out because it came out on my birthday or the day before my birthday. And I couldn't go because it was NC-17. And I remember just being the biggest little brat to my father. And my dad's like, there's nothing I can fucking do. Get over it. You fucking see it when it comes out on video. But I was just so heartbroken. I couldn't go to the theater to go see Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And I I was 11 at the time so um i think friday 13th part three was the first one i saw in the theater so like my dad really i i was raised by my grandparents and my dad would come around on the weekends because he lived in a really bad part of detroit that there was no way i'd get sent to a school there because i would have died uh, early on so they sent me to live with my grandparents my dad would come take me to movies on the weekends and so i i had an early education of well this is life whatever <laughs> so uh yeah, and, and you know, you grow up in Detroit, and the horrors that you see on the uh, on on the movies really aren't that bad <laughs> compared to some of the shit that I've seen. Like, I remember going to my cousin's house and being told, like, you can't go in that room. And I'm like, why? And then walking in there, and their washing machine had fallen through the floor and was just sitting on the ground. There was a giant hole in the floor. And that's how people lived. And I thought, like, I didn't realize that's not how normal people lived until much later in life. When I got into high school, and like each school district that I would go to, it would end up being nicer and nicer and like richer and richer people. And I would just be in the poor part of the city. <laughs> um, by high school, like I had people, friends and stuff. They're like, no, we won't go over near your area. And I didn't live in a bad area. But it wasn't until that point that I was like, oh, we're poor. Okay, now <laughs> yeah. I get it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I had no clue. I I actually, I was kind of laughing the other day. I was eating a piece of peach pie and I was like, I remember being fed for dinner, like a can of peaches and some toast. And I was like, fuck, I was that poor kid. God damn it. I didn't even realize <laughs> it as a child. Right. <laughs> that was my dinner with some peaches and toast. <laughs> what, the, what the hell was my grandmother thinking? Just... <laughs> I, I have had a blast. This has been fantastic. I didn't even get to like scratch the surface with all the questions I had. So I'm hoping you'll be anytime, w- willing to come back. On. I love talking. So <laughs> thank mean, you. Thank you for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the spotlight and the ability to have some fun. And, you know, I, it, it's a Sunday and I would love to be traveling someplace right now to, uh, to hurt my body, but there's <laughs> nothing going on. So it's uh, pretty cool to talk to you instead. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, you want to throw out your social medias and where to get merch quick? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, most social media, just look up the devil Drexel and you'll find me. And then for merch, uh, go to brainbuster, uh, com slash Drexel. And there's a bunch of really cool stuff there. Uh, some shirts inspired by Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Evil Dead and, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. I love spoofing things as an artist. <laughs> I love to spoof things. So, uh. Yeah, go buy some stuff and help uh, support my uh, homicidal iridistry, as I like to call it. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Stay safe. Have a good weekend and good luck in everything in the future until I talk to you again. Cool, man. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, man. Bye. All right, everybody, that was the devil himself, Drexel. Again, can't say enough great things about about his work, really. Like he said, go use the code for IWTV Drexel if you don't have a subscription, which I think every one of my listeners should have. Five free days, uh, and, the, and pretty much all the promotions that he mentioned are up there. So so take a look, have fun, watch. There's, there's so much stuff. Uh, you know where to find me on social media. Um, not even going to bother right now because I'm running short. Uh, I am going to say thank you, though, to my beautiful, wonderful wife, Shelby. Uh, without her, I'm nothing. And now I have to go let her go do her, her thrifting stuff. Uh, so, uh, if anybody is in the market for, you know, clothes and vintage cool stuff, uh, search thrift style mama on Facebook and you should be able to find it. All right, guys. Love you. Take it easy. And I'll talk to you next week. All right, guys. Bye.